Chapter 40 We'll spy relentlessly on the dead. We'll open their letters, we'll read their journals, we'll go through their trash, hoping for a hint, a final word, an explanation from those who have deserted us, who've left us holding the bag, which is often a good deal emptier than we'd supposed. Margaret Atwood, The Blind Assassin, 2000. I wake in a panic, alarm clock blaring, 7.30 a.m. For a moment I stare at the numbers, confused. There's no class Sunday. Why is it set so early? Almost immediately, the answer hits me, harsh as a boot to the face. Babette gone, my promises derailed. With feverish speed, I dress and rush upstairs. On the kitchen table, my professor's day planner lies open beside her keyring. A handwritten inscription scrawls across February 16th. Dear Ross, thank you for your hospitality. I truly do appreciate your patience and understanding and for being Elizabeth's friend and confidant. You can find her car parked in the Upper Sylvania campus lot. It meant so much coming here. I'm catching my flight home, but keep in touch and take care. Rosalind. I pocket the keys. There's so much to do. My stomach decrees the immediate priority, since Babette's fruit was my only sustenance yesterday. I microwave some leftover roasted potatoes and fry up a pork chop. It feels strange eating alone, without lively commentary on world events or random apologies for Hitler. Once my hunger is satisfied, I flip through the phone book and dial. A receptionist answers. Wilhelm's funeral home. Good morning. I'm calling about the death of someone who set up an account with you. My sympathies. What is the deceased's name? I pause. Elizabeth Ellsworth. Maybe. Or Albert Ellsworth. You might try Bobby Ellsworth, too. The woman sighs heavily. Sir, I don't believe you have the correct number. No, really, I plead. This was a client of yours who underwent a sex reassignment. I know there's an account. I'm serious. Um... Also, she might have gone by Babette Bonafont. She sniffs. Repeat those again. I recite the list once more. No. The woman returns after a minute. We don't have any record. I'm sorry. Goodbye. Wait! Wait! I cry. Can you just look under Ellsworth? With an address on Southeast Tolman Street? Please, one more time. I hear keys clicking. This is absurd. Why didn't Babette say what name she used? After a moment, the woman comes back. Ah, we do have an account for A.J. Bobby Ellsworth on Tolman Street. Is that who you mean? Yes, that's right. She's at Legacy Meridian Hospital. There should be an obituary on file and plans for mailing her ashes to Canada. Keys click again. The woman makes a droning sound with her lips as she types. I see crematory of remains paid in full, but nothing beyond that. No obituary, nothing about Canada. Oh no, I think quickly. Is mailing ashes out of the country difficult? The woman clears her throat. <coughs> it is an unusual request. I'll consult with my colleagues. We probably can, but expect some red tape. Do you have the Canadian address? Not in front of me. I could find it, though. All right. Well, I recommend locating that. Call back tomorrow afternoon. By then we should have recovered and processed the remains. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. 
She hangs up. The phone doesn't leave my hand. I punch in Zoya's number and wait. After three rings, she answers, voice raspy. Hello. Hey, you. It's me. Ah, such an early one you are. She yawns. How are you doing? I almost came over last night anyway. You really sounded in a twist. That's so sweet. I'm okay now, though. It feels good to be up and taking action. What do you mean? I hear a faint whisk of flint as Zoya lights a cigarette. So, that Lady Rosalind, the sister I mentioned before, is gone. She flew out early this morning. God, there's so much to tell you about her and everything. I already called the funeral home. It looks like that may be kind of problematic, but at least the process has started. Anyway, unless the family shows up today with cops, there's a chance I'll still have time for burning Babette's Canadian papers. She laid out a whole scheme I promised to help cover up. Zoya exhales in a rush of static. <sighs> Never mind. Now you just sound completely insane. Sorry, I didn't get the memo that my fiancé needed to worry about police and international document destruction. What the hell's going on? You're right. I'm sorry to drop it on you like this. How about I explain everything in person? Babette's car is still parked at school. I gotta go pick that up. Could I drop by your place on the way back? We can talk, and I'll bring you over here if you like. There is a terse pause as tobacco crackles. Okay, see you in a little bit. All right, then, bye. I hang up the phone and grab my olive drab jacket. It's still warm enough inside that a t-shirt feels comfortable. Without Babette's complaints about ice water in her veins, there is no point keeping her house so tropical. I turn the thermostat down from 88 degrees to 72. Minutes later, I stand at the Reed College stop on Woodstock. Soon, wide headlights penetrate foggy dimness and my number 19 pulls up. Two transfers and two chapters of Endymion later, the Sylvania campus comes into view. Its long, sloping parking lot is nearly empty, and Babette's blue Toyota stands out immediately, solitary in an ocean of concrete. I smile, remembering my first sight of it stopping traffic on Killingsworth Street, my professor confused as usual behind the wheel. Now it sits alone beneath gray skies on a Sunday afternoon at the college that gave her purpose for so many years. I exit into gusts of frigid air and approach the car. Inside, Babette's perfume surrounds me once again. She must have splashed on a whole bottle yesterday morning. I start it up and air rushes from every vent as the heater kicks on full blast. I turn the control knob down. Her stereo is still tuned into the classical station and Brahms bombards my cold ears. I swallow hard and pull out of the parking lot. Twenty-five minutes later, I find a spot across Burnside from the Civic Apartments and press Zoya's number. It rings and rings. There is no response. At last, I walk down below her window. Zoya! I cry out. There is nothing. Hey! Zoya! I try again. Zoya! An old home bum across the street snickers loudly and pantomimes my shout. Zoy ah, Zoy ah, Zoy ah! He hoots through stained teeth. Abruptly, the window opens. Zoya's sleepy face peers down. Already? Sorry, the buzzer hasn't been working lately. I'll come let you in. I return to the front door, and soon she appears, wrapped in a long floral bathrobe. The hallways reek of sour milk and fungal rot. Zoya pulls me inside for a tight hug. 
Muscles along her spine tense under my fingers through the thick terrycloth. We walk arm in arm to her doorway and enter. Salazar's rotund form snores atop his elevated mattress. My boots kick aside soda cans and Mountain Dew bottles on the path to her chamber. Zoya takes my hands. Sorry I snapped at you earlier. I know you've been through a lot. I'm fine. Or at least I can fake it for now. Everything still feels out of control. It's just so fucking stressful not knowing if I'll have a home beyond tomorrow. <sighs> sure wish I could call her lawyer and get answers, but I promised Bonnie Church in Canada I'd wait until Tuesday morning. That's the convent lady, right? Yeah, somehow Babette bought a half share of the convent and then tricked Mother Superior into thinking it would revert to her when she died. They had some kind of conflict, probably because Babette failed at seducing her. Anyway, I gotta go through the house and destroy everything Canadian. But I found out a whole bunch more information last night. It's also beyond bizarre. Zoya nods slowly. Great. So you and Bonnie are part of a giant posthumous revenge scheme because a fake nun kicked Babette out of bed? Now she's gone. Why is that your problem? This could be some giant international finance crime. Gonna spend years of your life in Babette's pantry, followed by jail time for her after she's dead? I sigh. As long as I'm still living in her house, I should do what she asked. I can't say if her Canadian business is illegal, though it's definitely shady. Everyone knows how secretive Babette was. If papers never turn up, there's no proof I destroyed them. This must sound totally ridiculous. I offer a helpless grin. Zoya smiles back, but with an eyebrow raised. Well, if being a loyal friend is your main fault, then it's a good one, I guess. Okay, let me change and throw a few things together. I've got the next couple days off work at the daycare. We can take some quality time, sift through French Nazi artifacts, and commit a felony or two. Once she is ready, I drive back toward Babette's house while I catch her up. Rosalind's true origin, the dramatic climax in front of 40 students, Sandra Bailey's strange role, and meeting the family members. Zoya shakes her head with disbelief. Wait, did you really tell them Babette said to call the police if they showed up? I drum my fingers on the steering wheel and take a sharp right off McLaughlin Boulevard that loops up Bybee Street. No, I wasn't quite so specific. They got the point either way. It can't have been pleasant to hear. Zoya reaches over and squeezes my leg. God, I don't envy you. I pull into the driveway and park. Leaves rustle on the tall acacia. We enter past the flickering gas lamp and stoic garden gnome. Inside, Zoya sets her backpack down. She looks around curiously. It feels so different, but you've kept the clocks wound. That's nice. I think Babette would approve. Yeah. I've only maintained the daily one so far. The others will need it tonight. So, are you hungry, or shall we start searching? Zoya's eyes sparkle. Let's eat later. I know I complained earlier, but fuck it. Let's explore. I pull her close for a brief kiss. Thanks. I didn't want to do this all by myself. Well, I guess let's start with her bedroom. We move up the creaky stairs and enter my professor's sanctum. Dust motes silently dance in a column of dim sunlight through parted window curtains. God, this feels so weird, Zoya whispers. I've never been up here before. And just like in the car, so much perfume. Of course Babette was a Coco Chanel fan. She sifts through cosmetic bottles and makeup tins on the black vanity. 
I move the toy tanker truck and model Stuka dive bomber from atop General Bonafont's large wooden trunk, then raise its lid, revealing numerous cardboard boxes. I hoist several out and set them on the carpet. The first contains binders full of stamps, mostly Canadian and American. Colorful graphics commemorate 1970s space exploration, statuesque waterfowl, and Queen Elizabeth II. Next, I open a carton full of German stamp folders, mostly much older. Hitler in profile, Hitler greeting a child, Hitler under a swastika banner, and Hitler gazing contemplatively out a window. The next series show French volunteers for the Axis war effort marching with rifles or firing artillery pieces. The remainder are all East German. Anti-fascist militia combatants, triumphant red banners, and muscled Olympic athletes. The last box is packed with postmarked envelopes. All are empty and carry international postage. I flip through these, scanning dates. The most recent are just weeks old with cancelled French stamps in each crisp corner. Further down, papers grow darker and more wrinkled. At the very bottom, my searching fingers extract one from September of 1945, mailed to my professor at a Paris address. Zoya looks over my shoulder. Find anything interesting? Yeah, but not what we're searching for today. I place each box carefully back in the trunk and turn my attention toward a large dresser by the window. In the top drawer are socks and underwear, the middle one's sweaters, plus many shoehorns of various sizes, and General Bonafont's antique brass field glasses. The bottom drawer contains several framed photographs. Zoya picks one up. Is this Babette's sister? she asks. No, those are all Billy Shoemaker. Zoya removes two more. You could have fooled me. They might as well be twins. Her eyes narrow. Check out Billy's blouse. That black and white patterned one? It's what Babette wore the first time you brought me over here. And this yellow sweater she had on too? Look, it's hanging up in the closet. I stare and shake my head. She loved that sweater. She wore it all the time. Damn, breathes Zoya. Babette didn't just become any woman. She turned into her dead wife. That's almost beautiful, but still creepy as hell. We set Billy's portraits back and rummage through drawers on the nightstand. They contain little except pill bottles and prescription information. I look under the bed, but only glimpse stacked French political newspapers. Hey, let's try her closet next. I know there's another trunk. We peer inside, and Zoya shudders. It's freaky. All those mannequin heads just staring at us. I scan along Babette's hairpieces, reading labels out loud. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all here, except Saturday, of course. Against the back wall is a large metal trunk, painted green with brass fittings along each edge. I grab a leather handle. Zoya helps me pull, and together we slide it beside the bed. I twist the snap below a lock, but it doesn't budge. Zoya points at Babette's vanity. There were some keys in the top drawer. I investigate and find a small ring with several old-fashioned skeleton keys. At least three look about the right size. My first try is a failure, but the second slides in smoothly. With a muted click, the lock releases. I raise the lid. Papers. Reams of papers. Some loose, others stuffed in binders or manila envelopes. Zoya rifles through a thick folder on top. Okay, so these are all relatively recent statements from Wells Fargo. Her account is pretty healthy, though I guess I was expecting millions or something. Maybe we'll come across a few gold bricks stashed away. Well, 
Judge Shoemaker left serious money when he died, but Babette and Billy had a lot of time to blow through it. She talked about them traveling often, and it wasn't all school tours. Then there was her operation. I'm sure that didn't come cheap. Zoya digs further. Uh, here's something Canadian. Looks like property records. I glance at these. Nice! Oh, also, this whole other folder is labeled Canadian Assets. We'll purge that for sure. Zoya sets aside several piles marked Revenue Canada and other related documents. I am picking over medical bills when an unmarked envelope tumbles out. It contains two sheets of paper. Hey, check this, I cry out. Regarding Albert Ellsworth. Date of birth, October 28th, 1928. To whom it may concern. This is to verify that Albert Ellsworth has completed all the surgical procedures required for male-to-female sex reassignment on June 21st, 1994 at Oregon Health Sciences University. Legal status should therefore be changed to female. If you have any questions, please feel free to call. Toby R. Meltzer, MD, Assistant Professor of Surgery, Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. Zoya raises an eyebrow. Well, that's considerate. Yeah, but it gets weirder. The second sheet is an official name change report dated January 3rd, 1995. It says here, Albert James Ellsworth is now A.J. Bobby Ellsworth. Zoya takes the paper. You'd think it would have been Babette, or Elizabeth at least. Exactly. And why keep Ellsworth? It means worthless in Old English. She hated that. I would have expected Bonafont once more. Zoya shrugs. Maybe it was professional reasons. Her school, the tours, and all that? I nod. Oh, right. Yeah, maybe once mares began consulting her, she didn't want a different name getting lost in their Rolodexes. Well, it's all odd anyway. Zoya laughs. laughs. You think? I mean, here we are, burning papers to hide a counterfeit Benedictine convent? I gave up trying to make sense of this whole thing a while ago. Smart choice. Okay, come on, let's get this Canadian stash downstairs. In the kitchen, I flip open the calcinator's heavy lid and toss in several crumpled property tax forms. I strike a long wooden match, lean through the sulfurous cloud, and drop it down the dark cavity. Flames shoot up, almost scorching my hand. I close the metal lid. Vent holes glow fiery red, then fade. I stuff more paper into the device. After several minutes of this, our entire stack is nothing but ashes. Zoya cocks her head. How useful. Why doesn't every house have one? Way better than a paper shredder. It's probably a huge fire hazard. Anyway, this is a great start. Let's keep moving. We enter Babette's study on the main floor. Her television, after years streaming nonstop international news, now lies sullen and silent. Dusty file boxes behind the writing desk contain decades-old marriage certificates signed by Judge Shoemaker, as well as his old notary embossing stamp. Nothing Canadian turns up, except my professor's giant framed wall map of none of it. Zoya gestures at this. You gonna cram that in the calcinator? I'd need an axe to break it down small enough. The best route from Whitehorse to Yellowknife probably isn't incriminating. So, it's already afternoon. I'm starving. Shall we stop and eat? Totally. What have you got? <laughs> everything. The basement freezers are full, plus there's a thousand pounds of canned goods. I defrosted some salami earlier and everything we'll need for sandwiches. Oh, I took out a whole chicken to put on the rotisserie tonight also. 
Yeah, let's do it. I need food now. Here! Zoya takes my hand and presses it against the soft curve of her belly. I squeeze back, then draw her against me. She wriggles with pleasure before pushing me away. Later, you. Come on, let's make sandwiches. After a satisfying lunch, we tackle the basement. Between my pantry and the library are eight file cabinets packed full of papers, some itemized or labeled, and others crushed together with no obvious categorization. Beside them, cardboard boxes almost reach the ceiling. We uncover endless historical journals, rolled-up geographical surveys, two slide projectors, and a reel-to-reel tape recorder, but nothing more warranting destruction. Zoya coughs as dust billows up from a large political map of 19th century China. (coughs) I don't know. We could spend our whole lives down here. How thorough did Babette really want you to be? She said destroy whatever I could find on Canada, and the rest would sort itself out. I guess the basement is a bonus adventure. Those property documents in her room, I'm pretty sure, were the main items. She didn't want her family getting a hold of the library, but that doesn't mean I'll torch it. Right. Hey, speaking of torches, I need a smoke. Come on outside. We walk upstairs and step out onto the front porch. Broken gray clouds overhead allow checkered glimpses of blue sky. Water drops sparkle from rhododendron leaves and tufted fern clumps in the garden. Zoya takes out her pack and sparks up a Capri 120. I stand behind and squeeze her full hips. Do any neighbors know? She asks. I don't think so. I should inform the old lady next door. She's always been nice. Not many others were really close with Babette, except the guy whose truck she always backed into. God, I've never known a worse driver. She, she could hardly operate a fucking motor vehicle. It's amazing she didn't die in flames before I moved in. Zoya reaches her free hand round and strokes my neck. You took good care of Babette. No one else could have done it. Hell, she would have driven me crazy. It was her good fortune you met just at the right time. I step back, take out a handkerchief, and blow my nose. Salty tears run down both cheeks. Zoya exhales a cloud of smoke before stubbing out her cigarette, then turns and pulls close, body against body. I unleash sobs into her menthol-scented dreadlocks, shaking as she holds me. Two crows flutter beside the tall acacia, curious beaks at work where thick roots twist deep into the ground. Their dark feathers distort and shimmer as patches of sunlight break through. After several minutes, my chest stops heaving. The birds have moved further away, now pecking at debris around a neighbor's trash bin. Zoya traces her warm lips beneath my swollen eyes. I sigh and kiss her forehead. I'm sorry. I just don't know what's going to happen. This is so much stress. She strokes my chin. I know. We'll figure it out, step by step. You know you're not alone. Thanks, Zoya. It means so much having you here. We return inside and move on to the library. I look over photocopied articles stacked on top of a bookshelf, then glance down. The ancient history section stretches below me. Albert Schweitzer, Ernest Renan, and S.G.F. Brandon. The titles stretch on forever. Works of Flavius Josephus, Historical Atlas of the Holy Land, and A Guide to the Thought of St. Augustine. I pull out Jesus and the Zealots. Brandon's face glares up at me with familiar severity. My fingers reach into the dark gap left behind, but feel nothing. I remove several more books, but discover only a mummified spider amidst dusty cobwebs. Babette's suicide stash, the two brown bottles, are gone.
Just then, Zoya's voice echoes from inside a large cabinet. Ross, look at this! What did you find? It's a box of photos! These are color, but pretty grainy. She begins flipping through them. I look over her shoulder. In the first picture, young Bobette poses wearing cat's eye glasses and a dishwater blonde wig. Her coquettish gaze angles off to one side. Cone-shaped breasts project from under her white sweater and a long gold chain dangles between them. In the next print, she stands before an imitation wood background, now boasting a sheer black top. Her makeup is more pronounced, scarlet lipstick darker and heavy blue ringing each eye. Zoya turns more photos. It's so sad. She's all alone. I don't know for sure. But look at the background. It seems like she's always in cheap motels. I'm assuming she took these with a tripod and timer, but not this one. It's in front of a church. She probably attended mass in that terrible drag. But how was anyone even fooled? She hands me the remaining stack. Seriously. I pick through them. Oh, check this. She's finally not alone. In the next series of pictures, Albert and Billy pose beside a sign for Seaside, an Oregon coastal town. I flip further and stop dead. Zoya raises an eyebrow. I laugh. Well, here's everything you don't want to see. She snorts and takes the photos. <laughs> don't be a tease. Oh, wow, they were really getting busy. Her wide eyes lock on Billy and Babette, naked in bed, their pudgy bodies intertwined and middle-aged faces wild with passion. I turn several more over. Yeah, and look at the dates printed here. They're all from 1967. That's four years before Albert's divorce. If Helen found these, it's no surprise she kicked him out. Zoya shakes her head. Pretty low. Abandoning a wife and kids for someone new with money. I mean, love or not, that's how it broke down. So, what should we do with these? It's not Canadian material. I wince. True. But honestly, no one should see photos like these of their parents. Upstairs, we drop picture after picture into the calcinator. Flames rise and consume Babette in her ill-fitting costumes. Black lace nighties and angora sweaters writhe on glossy paper that bubbles into oily smoke. Crimson blossoms burst through my professor's round face and strip her gaudy outfit to ashes. Billy and Babette's nude bodies shimmer under red light for a moment before heat melts them together one final time. Proof of their coastal liaison flutters apart, now cinders in a hot, swirling draft. 